in Ephesus that was comprised primarily, not completely, but those who had been formerly pagans, Gentiles. Uh, Ephesus, very similar to Charleston, was a port city. Uh, Wine, women, and song, the nightlife, entertainment, and idolatrous worship. Uh, the Lord, the seventh wonder, one of the seven wonders in the world was the temple to Diana, a fertility goddess. And so these Gentiles that have become converted now and have found a new identity in Christ, Paul is going to speak to them, beginning last week with Ephesians 4, very practically having given them in the first three chapters the underlying doctrine and the theology behind their conversion and identity in Christ is now going to begin to talk, beginning with last week in chapter 4, about their identity with Christ. Our identity in Christ is our being, our soul. Christ is inside of us. Our identity with Christ is our doing. It's reflected in our action. So a new people in a new position dress in a new manner. And the tension and the problem, the conflict that we experience in our life comes when we say, my identity is in Christ. I believe in Him, but my actions, my attitudes, my dress has not changed. It would be like a someone who was formerly incarcerated wearing a prison uniform only to be released and declared absolutely freed, and yet they continue to wear a prison uniform. And so this morning, I want to show you uh, three things. I want to show you what it looks like very initially to uh, put off what we're putting off, then what we're putting on, and then I want to spend some time showing you six ways, six pictures, six illustrations of what this looks like in our church, even as it did in their church. So first of all, I want to show you about putting off your old self. Now, I need to introduce to you two nautical terms. I I love word history. Um, Two word histories, word pictures are, the first one is the cut of a person's jib. Now, we don't really use that very often but it one time was a part of our English language that if you saw a man or a woman and you looked at how they were dressed you would say to them a compliment you'd say I like the cut of your jib a jib is the foresail or the sail in the front of the sailboat most having two sails and the jib at one time declared what the identity of the sailing vessel was. You could look at a great distance, and when you saw the jib, you identified the vessel. Paul, here in verse 1, says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, he's talking to Gentiles. And he's not simply talking about how they walk physically, but how they look and how they appear in the still pagan environment and culture that they are. He would tell us, as this letter has 
come to us, and this letter will be circulated in all the churches, that your dress, not simply your physical clothes, but your walk in the society that you still live in reflects and reflects your identity. Because the way that you think, your thinking has changed, your actions should change. Because your identity has changed, your dress should change. And that people will identify you by how you conduct yourself and you dress. Now, we're studying identity in Christ. And let me just emphasize that, again, this is not something that we're doing alone. This is something that is being done in us. Our identity is in Christ. So because Christ is inside of us, like imagine a seed, that Christ is now inside of us. Christ who is our life is in my life. And so now His life will bear fruit. It's not sheer willpower. It's not sheer self-control or self-discipline. It's more a surrender that leads to a cooperation, to a yielding to this Spirit so that He's raising that foresail, that jib. He's the, the captain of my new identity and He is dressing me. Secondly, second nautical term, three sheets to the wind. Um, now, I've got to tell you, I didn't know for the longest time what that, where that came from. And I've always applied it to someone that was inebriated, grossly inebriated. Look at that guy. Boy, he's three sheets to the wind. Well, a sheet is a rope or a line that would control the sails. And so if a ship in a storm or in, in, a, in, in a battle if it lost control of one of those sheets, let's say that that line was severed, then that sail would flap, and at the end of that sail flapping would be that sheet that had become untethered, that line that had become untethered. One was a problem. Two was a serious thing that needed attention. Three, you would lose control of the ship. It would either go drastically off course or run aground it would have no control and so Paul here in the passages he gives us three sheets as it were about the Gentiles they are three sheets to the wind they are completely out of control but it doesn't begin completely out of control it begins in verses 17 through 18 by darkened thinking. He says, in the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, they're alienated thus from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. That's all thinking terminology. And he says, their thinking is really non-thinking. It's like being completely in a blackened room that you can't see. You're blind. And he's saying their thinking is so pointless, futile. It, it's not logical that their thinking leads them to make dark decisions. Their thinking leads them to come to conclusions that are pointless. 
And we can see this as Christians, as Gentiles who find our identity in Christ now, we know that the veil has been lifted off of our eyes and we who once were blind can now see. And not only that, we can begin, and not with condemnation, but with some empathy and prayers, we can look to those who yet to have experienced the lifting of the scales or the removing of the scales of their eyes and their heart with sympathy and even empathy. It's little wonder for the many, many things that we see every day in the culture that we look at with scratching our heads and some frustration say, how can they think that? This is crazy. It's because they're futile in their thinking. I remember thinking that about Feng Shui whenever it first came out. Somebody was like, oh, well, the reason you've got all these problems is your house is not in order. If you just take that potted plant and put it over there, then everybody's going to be happy in the house. They're futile in their thinking. <laughs> they're darkened in their thinking. They're ignorant in their thinking to think that moving one plant from one side of the room to another is going to change all the attitudes in that home. Second, the second sheet that's in the wind is not feeling but hardened. Verses 18 and 19. Notice he says it's due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous. That word for callous is the word for a, a form of marble that they would mine in that, that area, in that region. And he said, that type of thinking, that darkened thinking, that unenlightened thinking, over and over and over a period of time, creates not only a blister, but a callus, until it becomes very, very, very hard. And having had calluses before, you'll know that a callus actually will build up quite a pad and you'll become numb. So you get a hard heart. He says that at the end of verse 18. He says this thinking really has a point of origin that it, the thinking itself is the hardness of your heart. Bear with me. Sinclair Ferguson on this passage makes this statement. Intellectual futility is rooted not in the hiddenness of God, but the hardness of the human heart. What he's saying is, is that the reason that they don't understand God in His ways or seek after them is not because God has not, it's not simply because God has not revealed them, it's more due to their not wanting Him to be revealed. A hardness of heart. Such that my own doubts, my own struggles, where I have struggles with unbelief or a lack of faith, it's not God's fault. It's my own futile thinking. It's my own becoming callous to begin to justify a rationale for my own sin. It's the hardness of my own heart that creates that unbelief. And Paul says, oh Gentiles, don't walk that way any longer. You used to, but not any longer. And then finally, like a spiral that is just going around and going down, it leads to sensual behavior, increasing, uh, 
increasingly sinful behavior. In verse 22, he says, your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So he's not simply talking about sex and sexuality here, but he's talking about all form of sensual, self-serving desires. Believing a lie that I tell myself and that type of thinking resulting in behavior that's contrary to the Christian's clothing. Constantly there's a conflict between do have I put on the life of Christ? I have the life of Christ in me, but have I put it on or am I still wearing the old prison uniform? Do I still look like the world? Though, and if I do, isn't it because I'm thinking like the world? That I bought into whatever lie they're telling me? Let me give you one quick example. Pornography. It starts out by thinking, this is harmless. This is a harmless thing. It's not going to impact anyone. But that's a lie. It impacts those that you're in relationship with. We begin to look at the human body differently. We begin to look at men and women differently, selfishly. Perhaps even like a predator looks at prey. Then secondly, continuing to think that way begins to influence our actions such that we practice over and over and over and become increasingly hardened. We come numb. Initially, what we might see that was shocking, we've become desensitized to. And then lastly, what happens? We completely justify it. We're deceived in this desire. It's a deceitful desire. We had the desire for some comfort, for some, something that it would give us and make us feel. And we've bought into that lie. We've believed that lie. And now we find ourselves having spiraled, spiraled to the bottom, whether it's addiction or just a level of frequency or a depth that we've gone to of sensual behavior that looks no different than the world. And yet our identity is in Christ. And so Paul then turns and he says, put on the new self. He says, it's not simply putting off but it's putting on. And I like that. I actually like the idea that I'm not going to be exposed very long. That as I take one garment, one piece of old garment off, there's a new piece of garment that I can put on. And he tells us how this can be done in two ways. But first, when is it done? He uses here, in verse uh, 22, he says, put off your old self. And down in verse 24, he says, put on the new self. And when he says that, he uses a term, this putting off and this putting on, he uses the aorist. Now, Danny Clark will immediately, being the Greek grammar scholar that he is, he will know what I'm talking about. But at the beginning of the week, I didn't. I was not a Greek grammar scholar. But this is important. So I'm not trying to impress you. But this is important. The reason is because we don't have the aorist 
term. We don't have the aorist tense in the English. In the English, we've got past, present, and future. The aorist is a decision, a point of decision, something that was done in the past, but it continues being done forever in the future. Let me see if I can give you an illustration. Because what he's talking about here is he's saying, you've put it off and you've put it on, but don't stop. Tomorrow, put off more and put on more. This last week, uh, last weekend, I did a wedding, and the bride and the groom during the ceremony had asked me to hold the rings instead of a best man so that I would present the rings to them during the ceremony. And so when they gave me, prior to the service, they gave me the rings, I received her her engagement ring, and then he put his ring, and it was rubber. Imagine, now it wasn't pink, but imagine this is a wedding ring, and that it's elastic, and it's rubber. And I was a little taken back. I was like, I have never seen one of those before. And he said, well, the reason I wear a, I'm going to wear a rubber wedding ring And he says, you'll notice also it's got a little perforation there so that it can break rather easily. It's because I'm a welder. And so because of the arc of the weld and all that kind of stuff, I don't want to weld my wedding ring or weld my hand to the machine or whatever I'm welding. And also working delicately, I don't want to get my hand caught by a ring so it'll just rip right off. And I'm like, well, then you'd be without a ring. He says, oh, don't worry, I can get these by the dozen. He said, so every time one comes off, I'm going to put another one back on. That's the heiress. He made a decision. My identity is going to be your husband. I have committed to you my life. We have made a decision. Jesus Christ, I am committed to you my life. And Christ immediately takes the old man, the old clothes away, and he clothes us with himself and new in righteousness. That's the heiress. That's a past decision. Many of you can think back, some with a great degree of specificity as to when you actually made a decision to become a Christian. But there's also the process of sanctification where daily, throughout our life, we are putting off and putting on, putting off and putting on. The two ways that we do this are, number one, the school of Christ, verses 20 through 21. And I just want to mention one thing in this, because if you look in 20 and 21, this image of a school comes from John Stott. He says, imagine a schoolhouse, and here is where you learn Christ. And he's talking to the Gentiles, and he's saying, the world is a different schoolhouse. But you are encouraged to take every thought captive. And so now, go to school. Get enrolled. And you're learning Christ. You're learning about His birth, His life, His ways with men, His truth, His teaching, His healing, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. You're learning all about Christ in this schoolhouse assuming that you have heard about Him. You now have not darkened understanding and ignorance, but you're hearing Him. Are you a good student? 
two rivers. Are you enrolled in this school? Are you a good student? Are you a dropout? Not exposing yourself to the voice of God through the teachings of Christ contained in His Holy Scripture. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus Christ. Who's the teacher? Jesus Himself. How were you discipled? The same way that the old disciples were discipled. They spent time with Jesus and He was their mentor, their rabbi, their teacher, and they were students. Don't be a dropout. Secondly, he says to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To be renewed in righteousness. I had a burden lifted this morning. I have been, I have been so burdened, Two Rivers. I have, been, I have been despairing. I have been depressed. I have felt exhausted. I have felt ministry fatigue. I have prayed and I have searched and I've wondered what is it I thought well is it the concerns of the saints and there are concerns of the of the church but this is not a hard minister place you're not a hard church to minister to what is it in this morning in my prayer I began to experience lift yesterday unbeknownst to you the elders and their wives met together for a couple of hours just to pray. And during their prayer, the, the two things that they prayed for were revival. Revival of, of not just a church, but by name of individuals, of you, of me, of them. And renewal. Renewal. That we become a place of, of great hope and joy and safety and community. And that's what we prayed for. And I left, and I still felt this burden, but I had prayed. And then this morning as I prayed, it struck me. The reason I've been burdened is because I've assumed the role to renew you. So if you are not happy, if you are not joyful, if you are not feeling renewed in your spirit, if you're not feeling revived, that's my fault. And I need to, I'm your employee, and I need to get after it. And I need to make it happen for you. Well, I am officially off the hook. I am not responsible for your renewal. If you are not being renewed, and I'm going to turn myself, because you think I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. If I ever get excited about something, you better believe I'm preaching to me. Phil Stogner, not even you are responsible for your renewal. I cannot by sheer willpower make myself happy, joyful, faithful, Christ-honoring, good-willing, encouraging man. I cannot. I just can't do it. That's, that's putting on clothes. I'm trying to put those clothes on. I need Christ to dress me. And so you renew me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Not feel, restore my, restore the joy of my salvation or we'll leave the church. That's futile thinking. You're back to old Gentile thinking. But he promises here, he says in verse, 22, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He's saying, that's a, 
You've been made new, heiress. That was past, but put that wedding ring on again. Daily surrender, daily pray. Do you have everyday worship in your life? If not, I can tell you, the old clothes are creeping back onto you. The old self, the old futile thinking, the old blindness, the, in, the, you know, the old hardening, the old lack of joy, all of that is creeping back in. But He promises you, and again, He doesn't beat us up with this. He promises you, I'll renew you, but just run to Me. I'll renew your spirit. Come to Me. Six ways, very quickly, that He does this. And I would have you notice, observationally, that these are all relational. That we do this, we do this for the unity, for the purity, for the good of the church. That all of these things have to do with us in community. These are not simply private things that we're working on to be better men and better women. But these are things that we face in order to be Christ men Christ women in community with one another. If you look at verse 31 and 32, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you. The you there is y'all. Along with all malice, be kind to one another. Be kind, y'all, to all y'all. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What does it look like? First of all, truth. Truth rather than lies. That we would be a people who are not constantly trying to build bigger and better, more sophisticated fig leaves to cover ourselves. Why do you lie? I've used it as a, an illustration of long standing. I lie because I want you to see, I want to give the appearance of being a competent, intellectual pastor preacher. So I will have people that will ask me, have you read this book? And in order to appear well-read and intelligent, I'll say yes. And as soon as I say it, I will ask myself, why did I lie? I didn't read that book. I didn't even read a review. I saw maybe a one-line advertisement about that book. Or maybe I read the subtitle and kind of figured I could bluff my way through it. Why did I lie? Because I want to appear in this image of a competent, intelligent preacher pastor. So I lie. Because I'm afraid of being exposed. I'm afraid of being unclothed. I don't want you to see my shame or my, my, my nakedness. I don't want to be uncovered. But don't you understand? And here's what Paul's saying. This is not a to-do list in your own strength. Don't you see that because you are now completely covered and dressed in the righteousness of Christ, you don't have to fear being exposed anymore. You don't have to, we don't have to lie to one another, Two Rivers. We can actually tell the truth to one another in love without fear of approval or acceptance. Peace, not anger. Now, I think that what he's talking about here is not... He's not going to make a case for righteous indignation. I think that's a pretty rare thing that we have to be righteously angry. But we demonstrate a lot of anger toward one another. The world looks at us most often. That's how they identify us. Condemning, judgmental, angry people. Look how they treat us. They even treat one another that way. And Paul says no. 
He says that because of the very peace that we have now with God, we can live at peace with all men. Why do we get angry, by the way? You might want to do a study, particularly if this is a, an issue with, with you like it is with me. I get angry more often inside. I internalize a lot of my anger. I will go to that place that says, you deserve it. You're stupid. You're such a waste. Others, your expression may be more outward. You either blame shift, you attack, try to take a person out with slander, gossip, malice, all that kind of stuff. Curse. You go after them. But why do we get angry anyway? James 4, 1 and 2 is a good study. It says, because of blocked desires, I'm not getting what I want. Again, Paul is not simply saying, you cannot do these things. These clothes are clothes that Christ longs to put on us. And how does he, follow through here, how does he put them on us? By the renewing of our mind. I begin to think. And I I submit and I surrender and I listen in this schoolhouse. I'm a good student. And he teaches me about Jesus Christ. And he says, look, I've covered you. I'm giving you every desire that you can possibly want. These other things, these desires that are being blocked, don't give in to deceitful desires. I died for you and because God is not mad at you anymore, you have no reason to ever be mad or angry to anybody anymore. Give, not steal. Not only does he say that it's not important to stop stealing, but he said it's important to take action so that you can start giving. Notice that he says that let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So he's saying that we get to a point where we see the transformation that I go from a beggar now to a benefactor. I actually go from one who used to always take to one who actually gives. Let me tell you how it works for me. I was telling, uh, Janlin was telling uh, of an incident recently, this morning, during their setup time, and I I just give in to this temptation all the time of being topper. You know that character in Dilbert? where someone will tell a story in the office and Topper comes there and he very loudly tops it with one better than that? I do that all the time. Now, I'm working on it. Or rather, God is working on me. See how that works? We're so tempted to take this and just say, it's something for me to do. This is something Christ is doing in our midst and longs to do more of. If we would just surrender and just not put back these old clothes... But my old clothes is I need to top whatever you say, whatever story you tell, whatever life experience you have, I need to top it in order to wear that garment, that old garment of being significant. But now I can throw it aside. I don't have to be significant. In fact, instead of taking your glory, your minute in the sun by topping that, because that's what I'm doing, I'm stealing it. I'm stealing your limelight. I'm putting that light on me. I can now actually say, that's a great story. That's a great life experience. I no longer have to, I can actually now bless you instead of steal from you. Do you see how that works? You see what happens to the community of God when this, this begins to take place? I can, see, I can know what happens to me. 
I began now to feel a real freedom as I walk in these new clothes. Good words, not corrupt. Won't spend much time here, but the word for corrupt in your Bibles, um, if you've got the ESV, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. The word there for some, if you had the old King James Version, is evil. Don't let evil come out of your mouth. The word means rotting fruit or a rotting tree. In other words, don't, don't, it, it either means don't throw rotten fruit at your brother and your sister, or it means don't be that rotting, smelly, oozy fruit in our midst. Stop it, is what Paul is saying. Stop it. He said it's even evil. It's diabolical. But it's not enough to say, okay, I am no longer going to speak ill of anyone. I'm no longer going to rumor monger. I'm no longer going to slander anybody's character. I'm no longer going to be a discouraging person. I'm just going to shut up. If I can't say anything good, I'll just say nothing at all. No, Paul says, no, not simply put off, but put on good talk. May we practice that. Over and over again, that Two Rivers becomes a place. Now what happens to the person who comes on Sunday morning saying, I just need to be renewed. I just need to be revived. I just need the joy to return. And every brother and sister is mystery and misery sunshine. Now, I'm not talking about being Pollyannish. I'm talking about saying, I'm glad you're here. I'm talking about, I love you. I'm talking about, I'm safe for you. I'm talking about maybe not even say anything at all, but can we talk and I'll listen. Boy, sign me up again. I need that. And then finally, unity, not grief. And that's where he says in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of your redemption. Um, I asked Wendy, about this one uh, yesterday sitting on our porch. Uh, she had to go out of town today with uh, my oldest son who's in town. She had to go out of town with him, so they left late last night. But before she left, as we were sitting on the porch, I said, you know, one thing has me a little bit stumped. Help me, because she's a real gifted Bible scholar, actually. Uh, I said, what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to be grieved? Not what does it look like for me to grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us what grieves the Holy Spirit. It's when we're not a family. When we not only say, I attend, but I'm not a part of the community, and I don't feel a part of the community, and I'm not contributing to be a part of the community. When we're not united, when we're not communing together and in unity as a family, that grieves the Holy Spirit. When we're just going through the motions or when we're at each other's throat, when we're not united, that grieves the Holy Spirit. So I asked when I said, what does it look like to grieve the Holy Spirit? The third member of the Trinity grieving, what does that look like? Her answer was very interesting. She said, you know, in our children's lives, they've had moments that as their parents, we love them so much, but they caused us to grieve. To grieve that it was that way when it didn't have to be that way. To grieve, to weep, 
to mourn after, to long after change. And I thought that was really good. The Holy Spirit is at work at Two Rivers. And here's how I know. Because as I have talked, a number of you have become increasingly uncomfortable, perhaps burdened, or even discouraged by this list. Maybe even a little beat up. But you shouldn't be. And here's why. Paul is talking to the church. The Gentiles who struggle just like we do with this list. And the reason that they struggle is because of their new identity in Christ. If they did not have a new identity in Christ, they would be no struggle at all. They would still be in that old thinking, that old comfort zone, that old insensitivity to sin, that old hardened heart. But now their hearts are awake and alive and they see. So this list does expose me. I've given you a couple of personal illustrations of how I see my sin. It exposes me. But praise God, I see it. I'm going to tell you before I didn't see it. I see it because, and that confirms not that I'm outside of Christ, but that I'm in Christ. And praise God that He's showing it to me because He cares so much and loves me so much that He wants to dress me. So, if you have a new identity of Christ, you can expect this kind of conflict. You can expect this conflict every day about putting off and putting on. Putting off, you need to put that off. It's, it's going to destroy you. It's not healthy. You're not made to wear those clothes. I have not been able to find it, but there was a study done. I'll close with this. There was a study done of young men when they began to buy their first wardrobes, either in college or soon after college, that they began to buy clothes that were bigger than they were. And the study concluded that that was because when they were younger men, their mothers dressed them. Their mothers bought their wardrobe. And when mothers buy young growing boys' wardrobe, they always buy it a little bit big so they can grow into it. Paul comes to the Gentiles and he's saying here, you're not made to wear these ill-fitting clothes anymore. And God comes to us through the Holy Spirit with Jesus as our teacher who's also our tailor. And he is making new clothes for us. We begin again this morning when we come to this table. We come to this table and we say, again, I see the work of Christ as a tailor in these elements. By his broken body and his shed blood, that's the fabric by which I am clothed, and I will walk in that. And we come, not individually to this table, but you come 
as a community. And so we're saying, and by this clothing, I will now treat one another in community as their identity is in Christ and as they are being clothed in Christ. I will treat them with patience. I will treat them out of these illustrations as I am growing more and more to be Christ-like and to wear His clothes, which are the very likeness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, clothe us again as we come to this table, even now, perhaps something comes to mind, an old garment, like an identity, the good wife, the good mother, the good husband, the good father, the, the image of a successful man, the image of a, of a great friend or successful woman. Father, those things are not our identity. And we shouldn't wear them as our identity. Father, our identity is found in Christ. And so this morning, once again, we ask that perhaps there's something that comes to mind specifically that you would have us to put off. Lord, would you take that from us? Secondly, Lord, as we eat of this bread and chew it and then wash it down with the glass of wine, would you... Father, use that in the schoolhouse as a great lesson, O Christ, that you teach us of your work on our behalf. That is gospel to us. And may it clothe us and we walk in newness and renewal in you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.